You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. All right, so a couple of podcasts ago, I did an episode on turkey hunting basics and really just went high level on every aspect of the hunt. Well, in today's episode, I'm going to give a couple of hunt breakdowns actually over the course of two days, but I think it really kind of dives into one of those areas specifically in quite a bit of detail, which is roosting turkeys and then hunting them off the roost, where you get one located the night before, and then you go right in the next morning and attempt to try and kill that bird. And when I was hunting with Shane Simpson down in Iowa, we had two back-to-back days where we basically had that happen, that scenario, both days. And one day we were successful, one day we were not, although we potentially could have, we'll, we'll get into that, but... Uh, Point being, I want to go over some of the details about what made those successful and what things you can look for as a turkey hunter to make sure that your roosting and then your subsequent hunt the next morning could be as successful as possible. So before I jump in, just wanted to make one quick update. The Spartan Forge app had its biggest update basically to date that just went live this week. I have a video on my YouTube channel that goes into a lot of the details about what's new, what's added. Uh, Biggest thing for me is just the mapping really got a big overhaul and there's a lot better imagery available in a lot more places than there was before. And just the layout of how the layers are put together is a lot more intuitive and easy to use in my opinion. So go check out the video, uh, see what you think. And if you want to go ahead and purchase a membership, you can go ahead and use the code DIY for a 20% discount. One additional thing that's important to note, the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is going through a name change. It's going to be now called the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. So in any of their podcast listening apps or social media, if you see that pop up, that's the network that you're going to be wanting to subscribe to. The Sportsman's Nation name will no longer be a thing. Now we can dive into the hunts themselves. So when I went down to hunt with Shane in Iowa, our plan initially was that I would drive down and sort of meet him, you know, half hour before sunset, 45 minutes, so that we could go ahead and try and tag team and locate birds in as many different places as possible. We had hunted some of these public land properties before, so we had ideas of where birds had roosted in the past, and that obviously was a big help. 
But as you know, fortune would have it, I was not able to get out of work as early as I had hoped. And so I wasn't going to get down there until like after dark, basically. So Shane was all on his own to try and roost birds. And he went to one of those familiar areas. And here's kind of a strategy that he employed. And it worked in this place. It works in many other places. Some areas it doesn't work as well. Uh, but effectively, we're trying to cover as much ground as possible. And so you can use your vehicle for that. And I don't, some guys like to, you know, slam their car doors and make a lot of noise and maybe that gets the bird to gobble. I don't know. For me, I am more comfortable just, uh, trying to be quiet, like pulling up to a spot, getting out, you know, softly shutting the door, get out and let things quiet down for 20, 30 seconds, then try calling and roosting. I think that's what Shane does as well. Uh, either way, there's probably not a, a super right or wrong way to do it. Sometimes I feel like if a bird feels like you know, he can sense that something's up. He may not be as likely to gobble as he would if it just feel, sounds like a natural noise. Anyways, when Shane tries to roost birds, he uses primarily two calls, an owl hooter and a coyote call. For the coyote, he uses his mouth call, his, just his normal diaphragm, and makes that high-pitched whine and a couple of barks on the front end. That sometimes works better than the owl hooter, and in other instances, I think the owl hooter works better. On this particular day, he was not getting birds to respond well to the owl hooting call, uh, but he was able to get a couple of birds to respond to that coyote howl. Problem was, almost all of those birds that he had roosted were on private land. And I guess, you know, kind of backing up a little bit, that strategy of trying to hit as many places as possible, get out of the door, do some roosting and calling, hop back into the vehicle, you know, drive you know, 400 yards, half mile, like whatever it is to your next roosting location. And those roosting locations ideally are in areas where you can get out and be able to cover a large radius and multiple potential roost locations. And so it helps to understand what types of places that birds roost in. A lot of times in hillier country, they might be roosted on the point of a ridge, very similar to how you might find buck bedding. Sometimes they'll be up closer to like, if you have agriculture, you know, on the back end, uh, the very tops of those hills, sometimes they'll roost closer to those fields. Sometimes they'll roost up in the top of ravines and sometimes they'll roost down in like the hillside, basically between the point and the top of the ravine. So there's definitely a lot of variation, but it seems like generally speaking, if you can find something like a crow's foot or some area where you have a lot of ridges and a lot of points that you can touch at the same time with your calling, that gives you your highest odds. And so you can bounce from place to place to place pretty quickly because you only have that narrow window around that prime time roosting, which typically seems like it's around sunset, you know, plus or minus through end of legal light. Uh, sometimes you can get them to gobble after dark, but it's really that narrow window. It seems like for the most part. So Shane got one bird to gobble that was on public and it was just so close to the line to where he tried to triangulate it. And it made it seem like to him that bird was very close to private. However, there was a chance that instead of flying down onto the private, he could fly down on public, which was wooded and just basically, you know, walk back and forth on the ridge strutting, uh, before he actually made his way to one of those fields. So that was what we had our fingers crossed on. It was really our best option at that point. Um, it was just a small little piece of, of land. However, the alternative is you go to a bigger piece of, you know, public where you have more area to roam you get in there in the morning and then you just hope that you hear a bird gobble that you hadn't heard 
gobble the night before and try to make a move on it. But if you're able to roost one the night before, then you're able to get in what you think is probably the perfect position to be able to set up as opposed to trying to move in on them when it's gray light and really up in the odds that that bird is going to be able to see you out of the tree and kind of limiting how close you can actually get to it. So when we were looking at the map, uh, the way this would lay out, we assume this bird is roosted up in the top of a ravine and we're going to be able to climb up the point on the backside. And our hope is that when this bird flies down, he can basically stay on that military crest and our hope is to be able to get up on that military crest also and have him basically walk right down that same elevation line, which, you know, looking at the map, assume that that could be a strut zone for that bird. It's not a guarantee. You know, there's every likelihood that that bird could fly down right onto a private ag, but like I said, it was the best option that we had available. So we thought we could make it work. We get up extremely early in the morning, start climbing up that ridge and we finally get to that elevation that we want to be at. And then we start moving our way towards where we think that bird is roosted. And one thing that's sort of important here, we're not just walking right up underneath the bird at this point in time, we're backing up several hundred yards to gain elevation and then slowly move it in. It's in all likelihood, if you're moving up the hill pretty, you know, calmly, quietly, I don't think those birds can tell the difference if you're a human walking up the hill or if you're a deer, coyote, whatever. But I've also had instances where I've made a little bit too much noise walking underneath birds that were roosted and they've, you know, they've basically spooked still in just pitch darkness and fly out several hundred yards over to, you know, some other ridge. So it's definitely something that I'm conscious of. I know Shane's conscious of it as well. Try to make those access routes as you know clean as possible. And then when we get on that same elevation, then, you know, in that still very dark time period, we're not using lights and we're just moving closer, but also looking at how the terrain lays out, how thick is the, the canopy, how thick is the, the ground cover. At this point, there was really no green up. So you could see several hundred yards in the actual woods themselves. Uh, it wasn't super thick on the hillside. You had some little patchy briars here and there. They were adding some cover, but if you didn't have those, it was just wide open, wide open forest floor. So looking at the way that the terrain rolled, if you look at a topo map, it just looks like basically a straight ridge hillside. However, when you're actually on it, there's, you know, little bends and knobs and, and things that are too small to really show up on the, the topo maps themselves. And so we got to an area where you could tell that the hillside kind of bowed out just a little bit, like, you know, a few feet, but it made it to where you created maybe like a 50 yard distance before that hill wrapped around just enough to where you couldn't see everything. And so if that bird were to fly down at that elevation on that military crest and he were to walk that elevation, he'd have to walk around that little curve in the hillside to be able to see us. And once he did, he'd basically be in shotgun range. So at that point, you would start looking for trees, find one that preferably allows us both to sit, look in that direction in a comfortable position for the shooter, gives us good enough back cover, bigger tree is better than smaller tree. And if there's any kind of deadfall sitting around the base of that tree, that's, you know, all the better. So I think in this case, we, we picked one tree and just, you know, had a weird lean to it. It wasn't quite comfortable. Wanted to make sure that there was something that we could sit there for 45 minutes, an hour motionless if need be. So we got up and moved over to a different tree that was a little bit larger in diameter. The tree trunk was a little bit straighter and 
we knew that that one was probably going to be able to work just fine. Now, as it starts to get closer and closer to that daylight period, none of the birds had really started gobbling at this point. Uh, but Shane had the idea that let's, let's at least get a bead on where that bird is at and just confirm because at this point we had just kind of triangulated that position the night before and wanted to kind of verify. And so the important thing about this is that Shane did not choose to use a turkey call to get that bird to try and gobble. He used an owl hooter, very similar to how you might roost one the night before, very similar to how you might try and, you know, locate one the morning of a hunt if they're not already gobbling on their own. And a lot of times you'll get those birds to gobble before they start gobbling on their own. So it can make sense, especially if it's still in that pretty dark time period, uh, where if you're getting pretty close to the time where you start to hear like, you know, little songbirds tripping and things like that, that's when it could be a good time to do this. If you know exactly where that bird is roosted, probably not a huge advantage here, but it's always nice to know if you can get a bead on exactly like the tree that that bird is in, because then you can angle everything that direction. You kind of focus your hearing and your sight that direction. You can see them fly down. Um, you can hear the, you know, potentially drumming out of the tree, gobbling, you know, wing flaps as they're flying down. When Shane actually went and did that owl hoot, that bird actually gobbled like almost directly underneath us on the hillside. It was kind of a surprise because we figured he was still at this point 200 yards, maybe 150 yards further along that same elevation line, but on that military crest up in the, the top of the ravine. But he was not at all. In fact, he was probably roosted closer to the bottom of the hill than he was the top of the hill. And we must have walked not too far from that bird as we were coming up. So in that case, it was just kind of good that we were as quiet as possible coming up. I think in reality, we're probably, we probably passed his tree maybe 80 yards, 100 yards. So we weren't super close to him, didn't walk underneath him by any means. But it was kind of one of those moments where it's like, oh, like we were, we were off on this one for sure. And the way that we were set up on that tree you know, we could tell number one, that bird was probably at a low enough elevation on the hillside to where when that, you know, we're on top of the military crest, we couldn't quite see over the ledge to see all the way down the hillside. We can only see, you know, 30, 40 yards uh, before the hill drops off too steeply. And so we know that bird likely can't see us where we're at right now. We also know that if he comes right up that hill, it's going to be in a really bad position for us to be able to shoot and film. So we use those two pieces of information and just pivoted around the tree 90 degrees. So now I was able to basically shoot right down that ridge. I could also shoot up the military crest and Shane was able to film over my shoulder. So as it continued to get lighter, we didn't really do any calling. Um, once the bird, the birds, you could hear birds around us start to gobble a little bit. And in one instance, we could hear Jake yelp further up the ridge, kind of where we thought that the, the Tom was originally roosted. Shane did a couple, just really light tree yelps, you know, just a, just a couple little, little pips and yelps. And after I think the second string, the bird gobbled. And so he's like, okay, we're going to just, you know, cut it off here. No more sound. He knows where we're at. He's probably only, you know, hundred, 120 yards from us. And then maybe a minute later, you could hear that Jake yelping up in the, the top of the drainage and Shane's like, okay, well now I got to respond to that a little bit. So he did another couple tree yelps. Uh, and so the reason that he did that was because sometimes those, those gobblers will either follow a hen or they'll follow a Jake instead of kind of leading their own way. And so potentially if the, you know, it made it sound like 
a hen was responding or giving attention to that Jake that might get that gobbler's attention. Uh, they might meet up, you know, just to, to try and add some, some more realism there. You could hear that bird fly down at some point. It was probably five or 10 minutes before actual sunrise. So, you know, into legal light, but still not, not super light by any means. And we could hear him drumming and we could kind of follow that drumming back and forth. He actually started gobbling a couple of times. And so we were able to kind of keep a beat on what he was doing. And we could either tell he's going to come straight up that ridge, in which case it's going to be, you know, a 20 yard shot, or he might come off to what would be our left, which is further up that hillside and up onto that military crest. And we had a big patch of briars kind of in that direction as well. So we had additional cover, not only from just that terrain rolling off, but also the briars. We could hear over the course of several minutes that bird start to work his way to our left. And so at that point I shifted my feet a little bit, got my gun ready because I want to try and make sure that I'm not having to move in some awkward position or move quickly. Once that bird pops up, if I don't think he can see me, I'm getting to the best position as possible where I think that bird's going to come out. So it seemed like he was definitely going to pop out to the left there. You could start to hear leaves shuffling in that forest floor. And then eventually I could start to see his outline moving through some deadfall and just kind of on the backside of those briars. Uh, so I'm like, Hey Shane, I can see him. I figure he probably can't quite see him yet at this point. He's walking under an overhanging limb. And, uh, so I gave it a few seconds and the birds probably around at 30 yards, give or take at this point, I'm right on him with the shotgun. Uh, don't really have to move much at all at this point. And I wait for Shane to confirm that he's got, you know, the bird on film and, uh, pull the trigger and, and the bird drops right there, starts rolling down the hill a bit, but we go pick him up and, you know, it was a great hunt. It's nice when it works out like that because when Shane and I have hunted, it's almost like we've been cursed the last couple of years. When we go and hunt together, it's like, <clears throat> it ends up being like a two day dark to dark adventure where we're just grinding the whole day, you know, whole two days and, and never get it done. But it just so happened that all of a sudden on this trip, you know, we were done by sunrise effectively for my tag. And, uh, you know, important notes here in terms of details that I think made a difference. Number one, the access route on how we got in there. I think in hindsight, had we known the bird was going to be there, we may have come up a little bit further down the hillside and wrapped around that point a little bit more to where we're totally out of his, you know, potential eyesight, not, not anywhere close to him, but it worked out just fine. We weren't making a ton of noise coming up that hill, but the way he was roosted, it almost worked out better than if he had been roosted where we had, you know, originally thought he was going to be up in that, you know, closer to that private. Because this now meant that where we were set up on that military crest, we were between where that we could hear that Jake yelping and where the private was and where that Tom was. And it actually didn't seem like there was even any hens, which was always a nice bonus too. But important note, we got up on that military crest to where if the bird was going to be in range, he was going to have to, you know, crest over the top of that ridge and basically be within shotgun range more or less before we're going to get a shot. There's been other instances in where a bird might be just underneath that crest on that hillside. And you're like, I can't see him. I can't see him. You can hear him drumming. He's going back and forth, back and forth for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Maybe he's got hens with him and you're just waiting for him to crest over that ridge for you to shoot. And he never does. 
and he just, you know, walks off, and then you hear him gobble again, he's 300 yards away, and you're like, dang, if I would just, you know, basically crawled up to that, you know, that military crest, peeked over the edge, I probably would have been able to shoot him. But that's always such a, a tough decision to try and make because it can go both ways. There's a good chance that if you try and do that, that bird might also be working his way up. There's a good chance you spook that bird before you actually get a shot. And there's a lot of instances where just like this hunt, that bird will come right up and crest that ridge and get on that flat and look to see where that sound is coming from. But it doesn't always work out that way. It did in this instance, but just know that if you're in that type of scenario, it takes a little bit of, like, I wouldn't even say common sense. It takes a little bit of like artsiness and, and judgment in terms of, do you sit tight or do you try and make a move? Uh, but I think in this case, all of the signs are pointing toward it. It's better to just sit where we're at, call that bird up onto this, uh, this flat on this military crest and it worked out perfectly. So now the next hunt that we can break down is Shane's hunt and for visual details on both his hunt and mine, whenever Shane posts the videos, which he told me is going to be this year. So, you know, likely in the next week or two after this launches, you'll be able to see probably footage from both of these hunts, but we go and try and roost birds that night and we, we hunted a little bit throughout the day. Um, didn't really strike anything up, tried hitting some other public pieces. It seemed like they were hunted pretty hard. So we went to try and roost birds. I got one to gobble. He was definitely like way on private and I used my best effort at a coyote howl and it sounded brutal. Like I hadn't practiced it at all and it sounded like a dying dog, but the bird gobbled at it. And then I tried my owl hooter, like knowing that there was a bird there, he didn't respond to that. And Shane had kind of a similar experience where he was getting birds to again, gobble to the coyote, but not the owl. However, that's not always the case. And in the time since this hunt in that same area, Shane's told me that he's used his owl hooter and gotten like four birds to gobble, whereas they weren't gobbling to the coyote. So it, it all seems like it varies based on the bird's temperament and I don't know what all the factors are there, but it's always best to try and use multiple locators because if you just have, you know, good old tried and true, it might not get the birds to gobble all the time. He finds one that's on public. It's going to be tough to get to, but we make a game plan and get in there in the morning. Again, we think this bird could be bedded or could be <laughs> bedded, could be roosted on the point. So we climb up this ridge, you know, pitch black. We get up on top. And we're 300 yards, probably at least down from the edge of that point. We're up on top of that flat. We, you know, close the distance and get closer. And our intent is to try and be within like, let's say a hundred to 150 yards away from where we think that that bird is roosted. And we have this again, kind of a, a military crest around the whole edge of this point, or if you're on top of the point, it's pretty flat. I mean, it's rolling a little bit. But then you hit that edge and it drops off pretty steep all the way around. And the bird is roosted off of the drop off, you know, to where he's, you know, when these birds are probably going to roost in the evening, they're probably walking off the flat on the top of the ridge point, And then they're just flying off kind of horizontal and they end up in some tree that's, you know, around that same elevation, maybe a little bit lower. In this case, I think the bird is probably a little bit lower because we never saw him fly down. But we're setting up and, and we have all these trees to pick from and we're thinking, okay, well, what's this bird going to do? Like if we weren't here, 
how could this bird potentially fly down and get to, you know, some of the, you know, private land ag that might be behind us. And one very good potential option is he might come right up the spine of that ridge, or he might kind of take the low ground route and slip along the side more and, uh, you know, be more in line with like the ravine a little bit. And there wasn't like a super defined ravine there, but you could tell there's a little bit of a dip to where if he was going to take the low ground, you could kind of tell where he was going to go. We sort of split the difference to where we could shoot up to both the spine of the ridge and the lower ground route that we thought he could take. And once we got set up on this just really large, uh, almost perfect tree for hiding two people, you know, it looked like it was straight out of a mossy oak ad. We got like four cameras set up and just started, you know, waiting, started recording and waiting. Shane did his owl hooter once again, located him. He was exactly where we thought he was this time. And I remember we had this discussion of, you know, should we move up closer to one of these other trees that was in front of us? And the advantage of doing that was that you could obviously, you know, you're that much closer where you think that bird's going to come up. The disadvantage is we got all these cameras already set up, they're already rolling, and there's the potential that, you know, he sees us. Maybe he can see us moving up at the top of that ridge. We can't see him, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he, you know, can't see us. There's a chance we get busted. So that was kind of the pros and cons of it. We decided to stay put where we're at. And, and in this instance, Shane says, no calling. We know where he's at. We know where we think he's going to move. It probably ended up being a good thing in, you know, reality because once that bird started gobbling, and we're thinking, okay, like he's going to, going to fly down any second. Then he does fly down and then he's gobbling and he's back and forth, back and forth. Like you can just tell he's below that military crest on that hillside, you know, just gobbling probably once every two, three minutes. And at that point, once he hit the ground, you know, Shane started doing some, a little bit of yelping and got that bird to respond. Now, after several minutes of that bird, just, you know, basically staying in the same spot, you could hear all of a sudden hens start yelping up in the trees around where that Tom was. It's like, okay, now this makes sense. This is why he hasn't, you know, really moved. And this is why he's just been gobbling in place and sitting and drumming in that same spot. He's got hens that are roosted up around him. Well, his hens started flying down. There ended up being, I think four of them. And those hens started working up that ridge and the gobbler showed up then on, on top of that ridge as well. He almost kind of surprised us because we're you know, all focused on this one direction. Then all of a sudden he pops up and he's, you know, 20 yards to the right of where we're looking. So he's sitting there and he's just strutting back and forth, probably 60 yards up on top of this military crest. And if he's on the same line as us, meaning like, you know, straight perpendicular to the elevation line, he'd probably be within shotgun range. But because he's further down the ridge, you know, closer toward the point, he's he's not quite in range. And those hens kind of went up and over the spine of the ridge and onto the other side. So they didn't actually go up like toward the, the top of the, the very top of the ridge of the private or the ag or anything like that. I'm not exactly sure where they were headed, but they basically went from the low side of the spine on one side, went up and over to get to the other side. And it seemed pretty clear that this bird was probably going to follow these hens. They didn't show him a whole lot of interest, but Shane started calling because at that point we had really nothing to lose. That bird was probably going to follow those hens. 
And he was sitting there back and forth strutting, and those hens didn't really hang up at all. They just got moving. And so he lost sight of the hens pretty quickly. And at that point, he was like, well, do I follow those hens? Or there's this other hen that, you know, from the calling, you know, maybe that's an excited hen. Maybe there's a better chance. Uh, you could tell just by that bird's body language he wanted to come up, but he was also very skittish. Um, if we would have had a decoy, perhaps he would have came up and close the distance, but we had no decoy out and that bird could see up the ridge to where we were at. I mean, he could definitely see the tree that we were in. He could, you know, likely see our silhouettes. You could tell he, he wasn't spooked by our presence. Otherwise he would have, you know, acted differently, but he was, it was like he wanted confirmation before he made and closed that distance. And we didn't have that confirmation for him other than the calling. And one important note here, um, and Shane, he made a, I don't know if he said this in a video or not that he's going to post, but he told me, and so I'll tell you guys, whenever he was making calls, from his viewpoint, he was always ensuring that that bird did not have a direct line of sight to where he was at. So whenever the bird went behind a tree or behind a bunch of brush, that's when he would do his calls. And from my standpoint, with the camera, I could see the bird in a lot of these instances, and so I could see how he was reacting. But that was a good distinction because if, if I was just looking at the camera, I would not have known that he was doing that. Uh, but it definitely seemed to help out because that bird hung around for a long time, you know, 20, 30 minutes, just back and forth, back and forth. And we thought about, you know, could we make the shot? Well, I say we, Shane was the one shooting. And when we got set up, he, he basically said 40 yards is my limit. I'm not going to push it further than that. And we're looking at that, that Tom and he's like, He's got to be like, you know, 50, 55, somewhere in that range. And he's like, I know the gun could probably do it, but I haven't patted the gun past, you know, 40 yards, 40 yards. I said is my limit. I'm going to stick to it. And so that's what we did. And, you know, tried to get that bird to, to come closer. Eventually he came out to our left. So remember the hands went to our right. He started coming to our left. And we're thinking, okay, it's going to happen now. Well, he rolls back over the top of that military crest and stays just underneath the ridge. He goes back and forth and gobbles out of sight for probably 10 minutes. He's probably in shotgun range, but he's just over the lip of that hill. So we just need to come right up over top, and it's going to be game over. Well, eventually, after probably five minutes of silence, he gobbles again, and he's 200 yards down the ridge. And that just happens sometimes. Um, likely, Likely the only thing that he was – holding off on was just confirmation of being able to visually see a hen on that hillside to where he heard the calling to make him close the distance. Had it been a younger bird, maybe that bird would have came up and investigated earlier, but this bird acted like he was, like he was very wary, like this wasn't his first rodeo. In hindsight, had we made that move up another, you know, 10, 12 yards to that other tree, the bird would have been in range. We went and paced off where that bird was at. And it was like, I had 47 paces. Shane had 52. So he was somewhere right around that 50 yard mark. Um, so we would have been inside of 40 had we made that move out to that other tree. Again, that hindsight's 2020, but hopefully between the story of my hunt and also the story of Shane's hunt, that'll help give you guys some insight into what potentially you can be doing when you're roosting birds the night before. And then what potentially you can do the morning of in terms of how you use the terrain, how you think about where the bird is roosted, where they're likely going to want to go in terms of travel routes, how they're going to use the terrain to get there. 
in order to use your setup and learn to set up and, and to where that bird ideally has to be able to get into shotgun range before he can actually see you and just kind of knowing when to call and when not to call. I've seen instances in where Shane has called a lot when the bird is, is on the roost, but in these types of scenarios that we had here in Iowa, the calling was very, very light. Uh, if you think that bird is going to come up on its own, probably better not to call at all um, and only call if you need to, which is kind of what we did on that second hunt. On the first hunt, we wanted to kind of ensure that bird knew uh, knew that we were there, so it's just light tree yelps until we got that confirmation. Last year, we did a hunt where a bird was just gobbling his head off on the limb, and Shane did the same thing, just a couple light tree yelps to try to get that confirmation, and the bird never gobbled again after that. He flew down and, and uh, went the other way, and again, there's there's not much you can do about that unless you're hunting a bird multiple times and you know what that bird's temperament is, but when you're just coming up on some of these birds for the first time, it's, it's, you know, sometimes hit or miss point being don't beat yourself up. If you have one of these instances and in where you think you did everything right and it just doesn't work out because in all likelihood there could be some things going on that are out of your control. Also, another thing that I've learned hunting with Shane is that even when you're hunting on the roost, try not to be too aggressive. Try to be, you know, more patient than you would think you might need to be. In the case of that bird on the second day, neither one of us knew that there were hens up there and that bird was on the ground already gobbling back and forth for a good amount of time. You might've even been tempted to go crawl up to that edge to where you could see over that military crest and that bird would for sure be in shotgun range. However, if you would have tried to do that, you would have certainly gotten busted by those hens and never gotten a shot opportunity. So hopefully that was helpful. Uh, hopefully, you know, you guys enjoyed the stories and maybe learned something from them as well. And like I mentioned, if you want to see the video footage from these hunts, look up Shane Simpson on YouTube and check out his channel and you'll see a ton of phenomenal turkey hunting content. And I imagine these hunts will probably be posted in the next week or so. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Empire on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.